So, uh, ooh, you can turn that down a little bit. Thank you. So we're coming to the end of a five-part series on the so-called reformational solas. In case you haven't been with us, these are these sort of uh, founding, sort of these fundamental ideas or values of that is believed to have really driven the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. Uh, they are sola scriptura, that is, scripture alone, our only rule of faith and practice. It's sola gratia, it's by grace alone that we are saved. It's a free work of God's grace given to us. Sola fide, which means by faith alone, that we don't have to work for our salvation uh, at all, that it's truly received by faith. Solus Christus, of course, Christ alone. There is no mediator. There is no one else that we need to mediate our reconciliation with God. And finally, today, then, we hit sola deo gloria, to God alone be glory. Now, did you notice anything about those solas? And particularly in the relationship to all to the final sola? If you're thinking about it, all the previous solas bring you to the final sola. That is to say that there's a kind of natural outcome that if, if our spirituality is informed by those values of the first four solas, then it puts our salvation, our life, everything squarely on a very God-centered perspective. That we are pretty much absent in this whole transaction other than being the recipients of it. In many respects, while we are active when we say believe in God or, or whatnot, but even that faith we're, we're given, we're told, is a gift of God. So we're somewhat passive in this whole transaction. And the reason why that's ex interesting to me, and so ultimately this, this whole movement at its core was, was rediscovering the centrality and the sovereignty of God, his being, his person, as then related to all the work of our salvation and even the world itself. It, it takes the focus off of humanity and it puts the whole focus on God. Now, why am I saying it that way? Well, because it's true. That's, I think, really the essence of what the souls are about. But, but it raises some really interesting questions. Because while we have not been doing that in this series, I've not taken to uh, my, my responsibility to sort of give you a kind of how do we interpret or how do we analyze this historical movement? What was its effects? What, what was the consequences? But if you were to talk to historians uh, of this, you're going to hear a lot about how the Reformation was sort of begat all sorts of things. Humanism, uh, political freedom, and, uh, and ecclesial freedom. That there's this sort of enlightenment sort of idea, and some even would say the enlightenment, and there's a debate. Did the enlightenment beget Reformation, or did the Reformation beget the enlightenment, and therefore individualism and off you go into all these various solas as, as you think, hmm, that's strange. So, so in some sense, humanism is attributed to the Protestant Reformation. Now, what is humanism? Well, in one sense, you could say it's this incredible empowerment where humanism discovered itself. We discovered ourselves. But the, the strange thing is how does sola deo gloria have anything to do with refocusing on the worth and the value of humanity. You see kind of the, the, the irony going on here? Well, our passage today, I think, is, is a perfect place to turn to understand not only solo deo gloria, 
and what that really means, but how it in fact does and did empower humanity. How humanity comes out of this, ironically, in a way that, that is, is celebrating our work as now sacred. It celebrates our individuality, but in a way that is somehow not secularized in terms of our sort of laissez-faire individuality, as in selfishness. And so it's, it's interesting that, you know, to give you a tour of illustration, you could certainly, as you come through the Reformation, you hear of how this had this incredible, powerful influence. Uh, for instance, just a few things that most historians agree on. By, there's no doubt that the Reformation represents an incredible revival. I mean, it's, it's, it's not... It's, it's, it's necessary that we remember that most all of the reformers, before they were reformers, had a spiritual conversion experience that brought them back to the, the gospel, that, that enabled them to rediscover the gospel coming out of a grave existential crisis of their own, in terms of their own guilt, their own brokenness. I mean, if you go back and read, whether it's Wycliffe, whether it's John Hus, whether it's Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all, the, all of these guys, there was this incredible spiritual revival that took place in their life. And again, the question is raised. Was it revival that led to reformation, or was it reformation that led to revival? But one thing is certain, that what happened out of this was an incredible, intense energy of spiritual renewal that went all over the world, really the, 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 the Middle East world, or the Eastern world, the Western world. For just example, um, it's, it's believed that over 5 million churches were planted in, in, in within 100 or so years of the Protestant Reformation. Think about that. That's, that's, that's taking you back to first century Christianity, if you will, and the kind of incredible activity of church planting that took place. So you can't say the Reformation was anti-ecclesial or anti-church because they planted churches. Yes, churches with renewed and restored identities. You had these incredible conversion stories that I was mentioning. But more than that, you had people who were absolutely set free in a way that, that there was an incredible resurgence in, in the work, what we call the Protestant work ethic. But what is the Protestant work ethic? Well, if you were to ask someone like a, a Bach or, or, or some of these great Reformed-influenced musicians, uh, we know that it inspired their music. It set them free to write better music. Scientists like Pascal and others are influenced by the Reformation. And many of those would put the little acronym, you know, SDG after their works, like Bach would do that, to dedicate everything they did to Sola Deo Gloria. And so you're going to ask, I'm asking the question, what does Sola Deo Gloria have to do with humanism, with the Protestant work ethic? with this incredible movement of, of freedom that, that resulted in political reforms and, and, all kind, and church reforms as well. Well, I think our passage is a perfect place to go. So I want us to look at this uh, as, as, as we do that and just, just look at real briefly how it starts. Because it is sort of a surprise. If we're talking about Sola Dea Gloria, what we start with is verse 12 and this incredible, enthusiastic, joyful sense of thankfulness from Paul about what? He's not here talking about his conversion, assume that you can see, about his being able to serve, 
about his work. Listen to what he says. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. There's these three thanksgivings. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but they, they correspond to what we today describe as a kind of internal sense of calling, an external sense of calling, and then this sort of uh, this appointment to a particular job or vocation, a vocational sense of that. He says, first of all, I thank God, our Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given me strength. That's gifts, abilities, this internal sense of desire and motivation and passion. He's, I'm thanking God for this. And he goes on and says, I thank God, uh, Christ, that he considered me faithful. Now, it's important to understand what he's saying here is, that, it, that he was found approved by God by, as measured against certain characteristics and qualities to do the work that he was called to do. You hear this empowerment coming through? Paul says, I've rediscovered my humanity. I have gifts. I have passions. I have desires. I've rediscovered that I am qualified, that I have that, that God, I'm not just self-appointing my, you know, I'm not appointing myself to this task, but I feel called as he has found me to be faithful to do this. And thirdly, he says, I thank Christ for appointing me to this service. Clearly, in this context, it's through the church laying on of hands, etc. But this call that says, you are assigned this task. And now, look at that empowerment. Empowerment is to rediscover himself. Empowerment as to rediscover his credentials, as to serve a specific task, and empowered now as by the laying on of hands in the case of being an apostle uh, to do this particular vocation or service. It's like uh, for you today, that sense of empowerment you're going to feel if you were to go through your training in graduate school or whatever it is, and how it is that you're going to be examined by whatever guild you are looking to be entering into, they're going to examine you as to whether or not you have what it takes, but when they have passed your test, there'll be a day of your installation, and the thing that he's talking about is work. It's this incredible sense of, of a very incredible high view of work and a sense of his own empowerment to do it with thanksgiving. Again, what does this have to do with solo Deo Gloria. My critique of much of the historical analysis of the Protestant Reformation is when they confuse enlightenment with reformation, because they do get conjoined. If you, if you secularize what here Paul is describing, you take solo Deo Gloria out of it, well, have you ever heard of the Protestant work ethic? Well, if you've heard of it in a modern sense, it's a bastardization of the kind of work ethic that Paul's talking about. You take solo Deo Gloria out of it, it's now selfish ambition. It's individualism, not communalism. And it's certainly with a sense of self-importance and self-sort of, of uh, taking upon the burden of the world, if you will. Would that give you joy? See, Paul here is describing this approach to work and service with a perspective that is absolutely ironic, if not puzzling. Because in my head, coming out of the Enlightenment, humanism 
and Saladeo Gloria seem to be on the opposite track. Well, let's see what Paul does. But first, let me try to make sure you see the importance of this. If you think about your work and your service, there's three postures, let me say, or three different motivations that I think we might want to reflect upon as we go to this passage. One would be this kind of a dutiful sense of service. You know what that is, right? From dutifulness, that is, I'm doing what I think is required of me. And why are we doing it? Because, well, it's, I want to be considered righteous, or I want to be considered good. I'm doing it dutifully, if not sometimes reluctantly, right? To render service as, as enough to where I can feel entitled now to say, I've done what's required of me, and I'm done. In other words, it's this idea of a, of a kind of a time clock way of service. You know, where you punch the clock in, you serve your time, and when it's over, I'm free from work. Now, that doesn't strike me as Paul's attitude about work right here. He's over here thanking God for his work. He's over here praising God for his work. The dutifulness and the dutiful kind of worker is a kind of reluctant worker that then's entitled to his own or her own freedom and time as long as they satisfy what's required of me. What's the minimum I need to do in order to, quote, pay what is owed, to obey the law of God, to, a, to be a good church member, to be a good professional in my field, whatever you are thinking about there. I mean, let's just think about it. Who pays more tax than they need to, Right? I mean, I will dutifully pay my tax as a good citizen of America, let's say. But I will probably, as Lisa and I have, we've employed, you know, an accountant. Why? Because we're wanting this accountant to look at all of our dealings and find every loophole, legal loophole you can find to finger away where I don't have to pay all this tax. That is a dutiful taxpayer. And it's not a taxpayer because you go, oh, I just paid my God for this money that he's given us at the end of the year so I can give it all to the federal government. You see? Isn't that the way we feel a lot about our work in the church, our work even in life? It's the dutiful worker. We do what we're supposed to do. And then when we don't do what we're supposed to do, it becomes the guilt-driven worker. The worker that goes from dutifulness to guiltfulness and from guiltfulness now, what do I owe you? Now, do you like people you're indebted to? Is that someone that you like to hang around? If you saw the person you're indebted to walk through the door, are you going to go walk towards them? No. You're kind of hoping never to see them on the street. It reminds you of your guilt. A lot of people relate to God that way. This kind of dutiful person trying to, and see, if you think about dutifulness, it's really just a type of what we'd call works righteousness. Trying to somehow... Do what I got to do to please God enough to where he's not mad at me. That's a gross kind of leadership. Paul here wants nothing of it. So from guilt to repayment to dutiful entitlement again. Okay, I paid my debt. I, I went and I served the church as much as I've been made to feel that I should. I'm free now. Thank God. But you're not writing this passage. I thank my God how he has given to me this strength and this qualification and this particular calling to be a musician in the church or to be a pastor in a church or to be a 
helper in the church. You see, that's not the attitude of a dutiful Christian. It's not the attitude of a guilt-driven Christian. And these both are in total different postures from the way that Paul is. Remember this humanism question. How does solo deo gloria get a person to the place of this empowerment, but with joy and excitement and passion and thanksgiving for it? How would you get there? Well, notice the third way, which is here what is Paul's way, beginning in verse 13. You see how it began when Paul, ironically, was led to rediscover himself as broken and sinful. Now that's a kind of humanism that doesn't come through the Enlightenment, okay? There's a kind of humanism that begins with brokenness and with self-awareness. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most sinful of them all? And the response that Paul gets from his own internal and, and life journey is, I am the worst of all sinners. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. Out of that, I'm giving you the big picture here, Paul then, out of this context of unworthiness now, unfaithfulness of gross and negligent sin, he's wondering why God would ever save him. Why God would ever choose to send Jesus Christ to save a sinner like him. And it leads him to rediscover not himself, and his ability or characteristics, but to discover God is merciful. And that transaction is crucial to understand how, how it transformed Paul into a new humanism. Ironically, one that does not take himself so seriously, but takes God seriously in a manner that empowers him without the weight of the world on his shoulders, He's not going to be the savior of the world to now joyfully participate in this incredible salvific work of God in the world with joy and happiness and passion. Now, I said all that really quickly because I wanted you to get that picture. See if it's not right here. So look, look a little more carefully. Look at verses 13 through 16. Paul's self-awareness as to his own entitlement, not to salvation, but to God's wrath. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, for the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Did you hear what he discovered in the mirror, mirror on the wall, and, you know, experience, I guess? He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. Blasphemy is when we speak evil of someone. Or blasphemy is when we degrade someone. Blasphemy is when we speak untruth about someone. And with respect to God, he understood himself to be a blasphemer. What is a persecutor? Someone who, who puts someone on the stand. Who puts someone on trial. And of course, he's discovering that he'd been putting God on his creator had been put on trial. Do I believe you? I get to be the judge, whether you exist or not. Do I believe in Jesus Christ as good? Well, I get to be judged as to whether you're good based on my perception of my suffering and circumstances. I 
get to judge God. Humanism. A worse kind of human. And then insolent opponent. So I was sharing this. I was in a little day retreat with uh, our church planners this Friday. And uh, we were talking about this passage. And I was sharing a little bit more about what I saw this passage teach. And we were talking. And I said, you know, there's, I'm really tempted to just tell, you know, when I preach this on Sunday to, to really use what, I mean, if you were to look at this word insolent opponent, there is a description of it that would totally help you to understand the original word. But every one of them in the room said, don't say it. You want me to say it? They told me not to. Let me just try to do it this way because there are some children. I won't say it. I'm just a, that guy's just such a, I mean, it, you just can't get gross enough in this Greek word. I'm just an insolent son of, you know, there it goes. That's what he's saying. He's come to see that about himself. I, try to get in touch with what Paul's saying. He's entitled to nothing. God would be justified by virtue of what he's discovered about himself to have eternal judgment put upon him. He would be totally justified, this guy, if he were to bring down his wrath sound like humanism to me, not the kind I've heard about. Now you're wondering, I'm sure, where he says this, for I am a chief of sinners. And the temptation, and some will say that, well, of course, whew, boy, that, whew, that was getting kind of hot for me in here. The pastor is making me feel very uncomfortable. I'm glad he's talking about himself here. I'm the chief of all sinners. And of course he has particular sins that happened in his particular life that illustrate every one of these words. But notice these are descriptions not of just what he did, but who he is. And it begs the question, does God describe you and me this way? Well, the answer is yes. I could take you right back to one of the letters of Paul in chapter one, um, 3 in Paul, where he says, all have sinned, all have fallen short of glory. And he begins to describe our tongues as blasphemers. He begins to describe our, our posture with God as enmity and as insolent opponents using the same words here in fact he describes all of us in the exact same way and so it begs the question what does paul mean here well see what it means is that 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 this truth is rather that when we are convinced see what paul is acknowledging is what happens to anyone who's discovered themselves that they discover that that what they discover is that they are convicted of sin by the holy spirit and an immediate result is that they give up all such comparisons of other people. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sins that he could not conceive that anyone could be worse. It's the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit and knowledge of God's law. Have you come to that place? Have you seen yourself that way? Well, see, you will never discover true humanity until you've seen it. And I'm going to explain that. You see, Paul is here talking about what should happen to every one of us. It's ironic. You know your sins more than you know anyone else. And if God has set you free from trying to justify yourself, then you no longer need to be like a Pharisee where, where I'm looking at other people's sins and hopefully finding some that I don't do in order to make myself feel a little better about myself. 
That's one way of trying to justify ourselves, by comparing ourselves to others. You see, there's an ironic shift that happens in our relationship with the law. Before we hear of the grace of the gospel, the way we relate to the law in God is adversarial. The law, in the hands of an angry God, makes me afraid, and now I'm trying to justify myself by comparing myself to others. When you experience the mercy and the grace of God, which is what he's going to tell you about, it changes my relationship to the law. No longer does the law now condemn me, because Christ says there is therefore no condemnation in Jesus Christ. Rather, the law helps me understand who I really am, which then directs me not to put faith in myself, the secular kind of humanism, but to put myself in my faith and the mercy of God, of which now I'm relieved of that burden of self. I hope that's making sense. And so as a result of this, notice what he says. He goes on to describe this, this incredible new sort of relationship. And if you wanted a good little summation of the gospel, here it is. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's worthy of full acceptance. Notice, first of all, it's universal. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the gospel or Christianity is exclusive. It's just the opposite. There is no sect. There is no corner on the earth where, where the gospel is not made available and that does not get full acceptance by anyone. This is, this is a universal truth that God came, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Second, notice how this gospel not only is universal, but it deserves then full acceptance and that the essence of the gospel is that Christ came to save people who have discovered themselves like Paul had discovered as a you-know-what, which I won't say again. This is really powerful, because what happened to Paul when that happened? He starts singing the doxology. He starts describing God, his infinite, merciful, sovereign God. He says, it's like he's asking, why on earth would God ever sent Jesus to save me. His sense of entitlement, again, is only that he deserved justice from God. And the answer was, it says it in one of our confessions, for God's mere good pleasure. For God's mere good pleasure. It's just who God is by his very nature to be merciful and gracious and yet to take upon himself the full responsibility of saving the human race. And that's what he does. I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now what he means by that is not that he's not culpable. When he says unbelief, that is a moral concept. He's written very clearly in Romans chapter 1 how there is no one that is not guilty of un unbelief is a moral category, let's put it that way. We think of unbelief after the Enlightenment as, well, you just fail to know things. You're ignorant. What he's saying is, no, you had plenty to know from God in his revelation and creation and even in the gospel. You've had plenty to understand and believe in God. You've rejected it. Your unbelief and, quote, ignorance is that you have 
push that revelation away. Kata echo is a Greek word used in chapter 1. You push that revelation away willfully and rebelliously so that you could reject your creator that you might be your own creator lord. And so Paul's not saying here in terms of this unbelief that, well, I'm not culpable for that when I persecuted the church, when I did all those things. No, he's saying it was an act of disbelief, of rejecting God. And that's, again, where he discovers God's infinite sovereignty. And notice how it's described. Mercy, grace overflowed, perfect patience, received by faith alone. Sola Deo Gloria, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. There it is. It starts with, I am so happy and joyful and thankful. I love my service to God. How did he get to that kind of a place? One, he discovered himself as broken and sinful when he was alienated from the source of life, alienated from the source of of all power and goodness and and grace. He discovered a God who, who is powerful enough to overcome my will, who is merciful enough to want to do it, and who is gracious enough to forgive me of my sins. Solo Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory, because his salvation is by God. So I want us to just step back in the next minute or two and ask your question. Now, how does this relate to this thing we talked about, Preston, about humanism and and this, this idea of empowerment? Well, just imagine, are you going to feel more empowered if the whole world and its future revolves around you or that you believe in a God who has alone the power and the, and the wisdom and who alone is infinite, therefore there is nothing in him that is derived from something else or someone else, that he is self-generated, if you will, that he is what Aristotle called the unmoved mover. If you believe in a God like that, where the whole world exists in him, for him, by him, through him, put anything in there. But you really believe that about God, that nothing whatsoever happens in this world that does not first and last caused by God. Even if there's secondary causes in natural laws, you might call it, or whatever words you want to use, I won't go into all that. But if you really believe that God, and that you were made, That is, that your purpose in life was not to be God, to bear the grunt of the world on your shoulders, which would crush you, to see your work as something that that you do for yourself in order to justify yourself. You don't need to justify yourself anymore by your work. Could you possibly begin to see how this kind of real humanism would empower Paul the way it did to great joy and have great passion with light feet passing through life 
Because the problem of when you take God out of humanism is that it oppresses us. We take ourselves too seriously. Humanism after the Enlightenment. And so in so many words, I could go through what many scholars and historians would describe as sort of, well, the Protestant created schism. The Protestants created the modern Protestant work ethic, which most people associate with capitalism and oftentimes a grave sense of selfishness and greed. Protestantism caused, you know, political upheaval because of its understanding of, of, of freedom and individualism as related to that freedom and anarchy and all this kind of stuff. Well, I would say, yeah, it's true that there's a sense in which you could take every one of these themes that we've been hearing about from Paul, and if you just slice solo Deo Gloria off of it, that's exactly what you would get. We'd call it secularism, where it's a secular Protestant work, secularized version of Protestant work ethic, which means selfish ambition, you work for greed. It's a secular vision of, of the individual where now everything starts with me, I am, and I now arbitrate or, or adjudicate everything else around that proposition. Does God exist? Well, I'll start with the fact that I do exist. And insofar as I can make that fit into my existence, he does, and so far I can't, I won't. It's a very different kind of movement. And it's hard to know sometimes. Did, did the Protestant Reformation beget in the Enlightenment, and therefore secularism? and political upheaval, and schism in the church? Or does secular enlightenment bastardize Protestantism, or the Protestant's Reformation values, in a way that takes all that would have come with it when God is the focus of it? Is the priesthood of all believers. Maybe you've heard that phrase. After the enlightenment, that's every individual's his own authority. Take Paul or now Luther or Calvin or any of these. No. The priesthood of believers spoke to the corporate church who was in need of no other mediator save Christ, therefore sola scriptura, sola fide, sola, sola, sola. It was the idea that we were set free from another mediator to mediate Christ. But we would still believe in the authority of the church as the pillar and work of, of the word of God to discern it and to develop a consensus together as to what it fundamentally taught. It was a communalization of humanity that the Protestant ethic created. To take out of the equation this insertion of a particular flesh in Rome, that got between those folks in, in, in Zurich, let's say, and God. Are you tracking? Well, let me just go back to you personally to close. The solace. At the heart of the solace, in a way maybe you haven't thought about it, is the rediscovery of humanity. There is a sense in which we discover ourselves now in relation with God. And the beautiful thing about it is it restores us to ourselves, to one another, and to God, and it restores us 
for life itself. For now, made in the image of God, given the privilege of participating in God's work of creation and new creation and redemption, and yet not with the burden of the world on my back to do it, not with this idea that, that you know, I've got to change the world. Let me try to leave you with this. One of the things that I've been here in this city now for a long time, went to school here, some of you know, and, and now I've been here over, what, 26, 7 years. And I've seen so many people, ministries, come into the city. And oftentimes I'll sit down and I'll say, well, well tell me, what is your, what brings you here to New Haven? Oh, I'm here because I'm going to get the gatekeepers. I'm going to get in this city with, with this university over there and with this over here, these institutions around here in the Middle East. and I mean, uh, not the Middle East, the, uh, the eastern uh, shoreline area, you know, and all these corporations that are here. And, you know, I'm here to change the world by reaching these people who are going to be, you know, going out into the world. It's those folks who will use and bastardize a statement like this, you know, that, that you know, that all, to much is given, much is required. By the way, if you go back and learn that, it's talking about faith and, and the fact that faith is a free gift. It would actually set you free. But no, we take it out of context. You know, much is given, much is required. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say, you know what? I'm sorry, I can't support what you're doing. You've missed the whole point. If there's any problem in this city, it's that we take ourselves too seriously. We take our, our work too seriously in the sense that we think that God is asking us to go save the world, whether it's in our professions, whether it's in our spirituality, whatever it is. What we need to hear in this room, what this city needs to hear desperately is this incredible personal journey of Paul and how it restored him to his work. How it is that that we can be set free from this incredible, oppressive power that much is required of me in order, and therefore I become a dutiful worker. I become a dutiful employer. I become a dutiful church member. And I'm doing what's expected of me to be a good little boy or girl. We just grow up and become a good big boy or girl. And all the while, we don't enjoy our life. We don't enjoy our work. We don't enjoy God because he's adversarial still. I'm still, he's the guy I'm indebted to still, and I'm trying to, you know, kind of avoid him if I can. But also with our work, we're, we're minimalist. Let's just do what I got to do so that everybody around me thinks that I've done my job. And so all you're looking for is how much do I got to give money? How much money do I need to give? How much time do I need to give? How much of this do I need to give so I don't feel guilty the next day? That's a horrible thing, and you're going to burn out before you get 50 years old. I hope you're hearing this message. Rediscover yourself and what you're really entitled to. That you might rediscover the gospel, the solace, that puts you smack dab in God's mercy and power and grace. Let that lift the burden of the weight of the world from your shoulders. That you can rediscover your work and your service and your time to participate you love it, because you're thankful, because it's a privilege. And you just can't out-love God. You won't find that out. Amen.